Welcome to a special limited series on business and society with Bruce Piasecki. Today, we're talking with Bill Novelli. Bill co-founded Porter Novelli, one of the first social marketing companies, and now a global PR agency. He started the Business for Impact program at Georgetown University's McDonough School for Business. He's formerly the CEO of AARP, the president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, and the COO of Care USA. He's the author of Good Business, The Talk, Fight, Win Way to Change the World, and co-author of 50 Plus, Give Meaning and Purpose to the Best Time of Your Life. He served in and helped reposition and market the Peace Corps and began his career in marketing management at Unilever. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here, Bruce. So, Bill, you know, nothing is simple in our world today. You know, to survive, businesses need to be contributing to society, as you well know, and to people's well-being. Otherwise, who's going to want it? So your book takes us behind the curtain to spotlight what's obsolete and how sweeping change can benefit business and the planet as a whole. What for you is different uh, in your guiding principles today as opposed to the past and what has shifted your beliefs and response to the ever-changing landscape? Well, the landscape really is changing, Mia. The business landscape is changing. So first of all, I think we can see that capitalism is not working as well as it should. We have these huge gaps between the haves and the have-nots. We have all these social and environmental problems. So that's one way the landscape is changing very rapidly. But the second way is that people are demanding investors, employees, customers. And while trust in institutions is ticking down, it's actually ticking up among corporations. So people want companies to change and they want to see companies tackle social issues. I admire the four different phases of your career. So during this conversation, we're going to talk about what you learned in college and then went to the Nixon administration. From then, you took the enterprise risk and to create your own company, Plurinovelli. And then, you know, phase three is you become the CEO of AARP. And then in my mind, phase four is you decide to write a book to give to the next generation during your decade at Georgetown. So I wanted to start by saying I admire you not only for your track record as the founder of a major Porter Novelli, nor for your CEO-ship at AARP, but the fact that you were willing to offer a book to the next generation. Let's just start sportively. Was that a painful experience or was that a fun experience for you? Bruce, you've written so many books. You know that writing a book is painful, right? But I felt like I had something to say. And I, I have had a long career. About half of it has been in business and about half has been in what I think of as a social change or public service. And I've learned a lot and I've got the scar tissue to prove it. In a modern way, Bill, you're like a Ben Franklin who spent the first 42 years of his life earning and establishing because nothing makes a man, Victor Hugo said, so adventurous as an empty pocket. So Franklin talks about filling his pocket, but then he spent another three decades giving back. And it sounds like you were able to do that. You were able to spend a life in society and giving back. Did you see that while you were in college or did that happen slowly? Well, it actually happened as a kind of an epiphany. And here's what happened, Bruce. I was at um, Unilever as a brand manager doing pretty well. And then I went to a hot New York ad agency. And in both cases, I was marketing laundry detergents and kids' cereals and pet foods and what have you. And my problem was I couldn't find any social relevance in all that. And then one day I figured out that I could apply marketing principles and practices to social issues and ideas and causes. 
just as I could to package goods. So that was it. And from there on, I, I basically pursued this idea of trying to make significant contributions to solving social problems. If we could emphasize the drama of career shifts. So you did mention Unilever and you did mention the ad agency. Wasn't your first employment after you have penned the Nixon administration or how does that fit? That came a little bit later. I had that epiphany and I ended up changing careers essentially. And I went down to Washington to market the Peace Corps. I was working away on marketing. And in those days, the Peace Corps was doing fine. But these host countries were saying, we need more skilled people. We need more people who understand the agriculture, who are nurses, who are MBA. And we need more people who look like us. So the idea was to reposition the Peace Corps. And then the Nixon administration came calling. And I was not a political animal then. And I thought to myself, I can work on marketing a presidential candidate. And so I began to do that. It was the re-election of Richard Nixon. So I was brought in to help set up the in-house advertising and promotion agency, which we called the November Group. There's very interesting and almost hilarious details in that section of the book, Good Business, where you talk about a thing called creep. And then you talk about as you're getting into this idea, then you could stay in the corridors of power and return in the second administration, you turn the page and you say, no, thanks. And you <laughs> launch a new thing. What was creep and why did you decide to leave the corridors of power? Creep was the committee for the reelection of the president. So that was the big apparatus running the Nixon reelection campaign. And one of the lessons there is be careful what kind of acronyms you come up with, right? Uh, they've never lived that one. And we were the in-house ad agency. And we were in the same offices. So I think you were referring to one story where we had our creative people and our media people in New York, and the rest of us were down in Washington. And one day I went up on the shuttle to a meeting with our New York people. And I, I was in a hurry. I didn't see the newspapers. I ran into the office in New York and I said, okay, let's talk. And they said, wait a minute. And they threw the New York Times down on the table and it said Watergate break-in. And it named McCord and G. Gordon Liddy and others, and they said, is it possible that these Creep people are in on this? Because Gordon Liddy was the general counsel for Creep and also the general counsel for us. So I was supposed to know something, right? I was from Washington. So I said, there's no way that this is organized. This is some kind of a rogue operation. I mean, we are so far ahead in the polls, you'd have to be crazy to do that. And they said, yeah, you're right. And we went on with the meeting. I, it would be interesting to be in those rooms when those decisions were made. I'm wondering, Bill, if you just jumped ahead, you're leaving Nixon and you're finding a partnership with someone you meet at the Peace Corps who's seven years older than you. And I would think that many of your listening audience are trying to figure out how to bond with a key business partner early in life. Can you reconstruct the decisions you made to befriend this man, Porter? You're a senior, launch a company that now has 26 offices all around the world. Uh, could you tell us about how you evaluated his character, how you supplemented each other, how you were kind of like a hand in gloves? Well, Bruce, the first thing is when I was in graduate school and undergraduate school at Penn, the word entrepreneur was never mentioned. The idea was join a big company, climb the ladder, be successful, retire, that kind of thing. And of course, today it's all different. So for me, it was an adventure. I had little kids. My wife and I had moved to Washington. The question was, should we take this gamble? And Jack Porter was a guy, as you say, seven years older. He had had a comparable career to me in terms of marketing and advertising and uh, 
PR. So we said to ourselves, we really want to start a company. We want to go out on our own. We think we know how to do something. And we decided, Bruce, we would apply marketing and marketing communications to what we thought Washington was really about, which was health and social issues. Now, we know that Washington is about power and politics, but we were naive, maybe, and it, and it paid off for us. So we pioneered in this positioning, in this social marketing. And as you say, we really built a company and it was a wonderful journey. You became a risk taker rather than the man climbing the corporate ladder. Do you think that's played a role in your ability to look at corporate mansions and their responsibilities from a different vantage point? I really do, Bruce. I think whenever you practice entrepreneurship, whenever you take, I'm going to call them warranted risks, I think you see the world differently. And, you know, today I teach these MBA students and so many of them are willing to take a, a gamble. They're willing to do a startup. They're willing to try new things. Many of them, of course, are going to big companies, a Unilever or uh, CVS Health or whatever. But what I see is that students today are willing to be entrepreneurs and interested in being entrepreneurs. And what they say they want, Bruce, is they say they want purpose as well as a paycheck. It's interesting because you work at Georgetown. You've been at all ends of the spectrum. Thinking about the future, there's just so much uncertainty for, for all of us. We're living in the century of the city and this decade of transformation. But many of us just don't know what, what the world will look like in the future in terms of natural resources, carbon dioxide emissions. As you think about cities and our future, energy consumption, food, pollution, what do you envisage? And how can we make the world a better place? The world is uncertain. And I feel that we owe it to future generations to make things better. And when I really think about it, and if you look at these giant problems, they're way too big for any one sector to solve. I like to say problems worthy of attack prove their worth by attacking back. And these big problems, whether it's climate change or immigration or what have you, they are attacking us back. So what we need to do, I think, is all sectors need to work together. And that's easier said than done. So we need the corporate sector to team up with civil society and government. And we have to say to ourselves, there's no permanent enemies, only permanent principles, only permanent values. So we've got to cross the aisle and work together. And that's the only way out of this mess that we're in. At Georgetown, just tell us a little bit about the Business Impact Center and what you felt was necessary to impart in terms of leadership and grounding principles? Well, the idea really here is that, as I said before, companies are learning how to incorporate social and environmental strategies into their core businesses. And so what we do at Business for Impact at Georgetown is we do partnerships with these companies to help them to tackle those issues. And we also have a lot of students involved. I like to call it student power. So these are MBAs, undergraduate business majors, but also students from law, from medicine, from public policy. And they gravitate to this because they really are interested in making a difference. And what we like to say is every student that walks out of Georgetown is going to understand that there's more than one bottom line. I'm interested in unpacking your comment about there are no permanent enemies, only permanent values. And it seems to be that you portray in all of the boards I serve on with you and all the work I've gotten to watch you in action, you have the common confidence of knowing that across time, you can fight and fight again. And in youth, I remember telling a lot of my college students when I was a professor that the race is not just one time around the lap, that you're going to have 
40 or 50 chances around the lap. And there is a passage in your book where you talk about believing in refreshment, believing in revitalization. What do you mean there are no permanent enemies? As you round the track, you can make other coalitions fight tobacco, fight obesity, fight climate change. I think the new generation, it's an anxious generation, can empathize with this notion of continual fight. Because your book is called Good Business, The Talk, Fight, Win Way to Change the World. Well, we've got to get everybody at the table. And obviously, they're not going to agree. So as you say, I've negotiated with the tobacco industry, the pharmaceutical industry, fast foods, all kinds of different sectors. And they all have their own interests. And many of those interests are out of whack, out of touch with society more broadly. And so we need to sit at the table. So I want to give you a good example. Right now at Georgetown, we run a coalition. And it's a coalition of major food companies like Unilever and Nestle and many, many others. PepsiCo. It's got soft drink companies. It's got academics and government and watchdog nonprofits. And we sit at the table and we say, what are we going to do to tackle obesity? And there's not always very much agreement. And so what we've got to do is really, as you said, talk and fight if we're going to win. And students come to me and they say, I want to have a great career. I want to buy a house. I want to have a family. I never want to lose my sense of purpose. What is the way? How would you go about it? And it makes me laugh. And I say, there is no way. There's no single journey. As you say, it's many laps around the track. And part of the joy of life is laying out your own journey and living it and making it successful. What I like about what you both do, Bill and Bruce, is that you've been really involved in both public and private partnerships. It's not just one exclusive. You both have this broad experience. We vote every day when we make our purchases and we can't think that the government is the enemy. So can you discuss innovative ways that you brought people around the table, people who might seem opposed or just completely in different fields, but you've managed to find coalition and consensus. I'm going to return to your example of Nestle, Unilever, PepsiCo, soft drink, et cetera. But I think that deep down humanity likes the dance of dialogue. Humanity likes being informed and persuaded and delighted to get out of entrenched positions. So part of the magic, I would say, Bill, in the workshops that we run is understanding that this person needs refreshment, needs a new perspective, and they want to be, in a sense, in my way of thinking of it, convinced that it's safe to come into a new sanctuary where we act as an enabler of a discussion so that when they have to go back into their corporate mansion, law firm, or their lobbying firm, they have that sanctuary effect. So how did you, in the Georgetown case about obesity, you know, are you personally calling up the CEOs of Nestle and Unilever or PepsiCo? How do you serve as the enabler? How do you guys enable everyone to get to the table? Well, we're not dealing with the CEOs, but we, we hope to be. Right now, we're dealing with marketing people, nutritionists. We're dealing with people sort of at the mid-level. One of the things I've learned is you don't have to be the CEO to lead. You can lead from the middle. Colin Powell taught me that. And the uh, obesity case is a good one. But I, I want to give you another one, which was when I was at AERP, we called it Divided We Fail. And it was all about trying to get healthcare reform in the United States. Now, we formed this unholy alliance. It consisted of the business roundtable. Those are the big companies, the big CEOs. It consisted of a labor union and also small business and AARP, which is essentially a consumer group. 
And we would go up to Capitol Hill together to lobby. And up on the hill, they would say, you guys can't even agree on what day it is. And we'd say, well, that may be true, but we can agree on health care reform. And that's what we're here to talk to you about. And so it really was the kind of thing of getting strange bedfellows together to make a difference. People really want to work to their own advantage, of course. But a lot of what we're talking about is enlightened self-interest. Tell us how many Fortune 500s did you work with through Porter Novelli? Well, when we started the firm, the first big client we had was not a company at all. It was a national high blood pressure education program and was run by the government. So we had skills that they did not have. And we really learned as much as we contributed to this big coalition on high blood pressure control. And pharmaceutical companies joined this coalition, even though it was run by government. As a young person, you took a massive pivot, but you also explained the social conscience of coming home and telling your wife. And your wife says, this is exciting. Let's go for it. We've got a wonderful family. I call her the CFO of our family. And you know what it's all about? It's all about team building. So whether you're in a company, uh, a family, a university, it's all about team building. So how did you create the Porter Novelli Index that still lives today? And what does it do for corporations, individuals, and consumers? Well, the idea of an index like this is to constantly track public opinion. But this goes way back to doing various kinds of research, testing questions over time. And now what's happened is that this tracking device that the company still uses, although I'm not part of the company anymore, this tracking device goes out and it tracks how investors are seeing companies, how employees are seeing companies, how consumers are seeing companies. And of course, you've got to keep your hand on, you've got to keep your attention glued to that if you're going to be able to make good corporate decisions. I want to give a quick example, if I may, Bruce, of a company that has figured out the importance of this. So the VF Corporation, they have Vans, the North Face, Timberland. They control the supply chain for those brands. And what they do is they have about a million employees all wow. around the world, a million employees. But the employees don't work for the company. They work for contract factories. And VF says, we're going to treat these employees, they're mostly women, like they are our own employees. Now, why do they do that? And they track public opinion constantly. And they, that number one, they call it the right thing to do. So altruism, if you will. Number two, they say to these employees, what do you need? And they hear things like, we need more childcare. We need clean water. We need eyeglasses. We need some protection from sexual harassment on the job. And then they try to give those employees, those kinds of services through NGOs on the ground. And why do they do that? Because it increases productivity. But the last reason is a consumer reason. And that is that consumers today, especially younger ones like millennials and below, they want to know that the people who are making their apparel and their footwear are being treated fairly. And so they monitor that and they make sure that customers understand that they're treating their employees fairly. You were in marketing for years, involved in so many things. I feel that we've squandered our time in, in many ways. We're involved in communications and education, and I think that that's very important. And sometimes I feel like oh, we've been wasting time on that. We have to just have to leap ahead to the action. So how do you translate some of the, the education and the marketing skills that you have to accelerate the change? I so agree with you. I, we've wasted time. We've squandered time. We've wasted resources, and now we have to accelerate change. And I think that we can all do that because companies are seeing the writing on the wall. Look at these giant fossil fuel companies. You know, for years, they had two things. One is they pumped oil, and two is they sold oil. That's what they did. 
Now they see that they've got to change. So we have the skill sets, we have the marketing, we have the communications, we have the universities behind us. We can accelerate change. This is our responsibility and it's our opportunity. And so that's why I like to work with Bruce. I like to work on these big companies because I think that, that they want to change. They need direction, they need frameworks, they need formula, and that's what we can help them with. You do define yourself on page 45 of your book as being a lifetime warrior. So let's get into that. So you have the con and the confidence to look at a giant problem and approach it rather than be paralyzed. But you also, once you're inside of that problem, you're persistent. You're a fighter. Tell us a little bit by which being as a lifetime warrior. I go to my wife, Andrea, and by good fortune, I will often say, this is impossible. And she'll say, no. Just listen to what you've done in the past. You've done it before. It's not impossible. But what's the value of being a lifetime warrior? Well, I worry a lot. I, in fact, I still do it. I tell in the book about how in the early days of Porto Novelli, I, I sat bolt upright in bed one night and I said in my sleep, can we make payroll? You know, worrying is an art form. And it really uh, requires you to ask the question, what's next? Worrying is about trying to see around corners not being satisfied with the status quo. As Mia said, we need to accelerate change. What I like about that, though, is you're not providing in this book anything but an honest personal narrative of both the bumps and the fight. Part of it is the persistent fight, and part of it is the fun of coming back. Would you think that that's part of what propels you into the future? I, I think it is. And, you know, I feel that that's the way the young people are today. They're not willing to accept the status quo. They don't just want a job and a paycheck. You know, I talk to so many of these uh, students, these MBAs, these undergraduates, they want to make a difference. They don't want to sit back. And this is our greatest asset. I see the leadership of tomorrow in our classrooms today, and I think we're going to make a difference. People are certainly awake. Some of them are a bit paralyzed, not knowing to prioritize. There's going to be some things that we're just not going to get to, and it'll have to sort itself out somehow. So how do you prioritize and identify what are the next priorities for you and where you feel you can make the most change? Well, I have three priorities right now. One is working on climate action. This is, as it's been called many times, an existential threat. We have got to solve that problem and we've got to accelerate change. The second one is science and technology. If you look around the world, certainly in the United States, we're underspending in science and technology. We need more STEM graduates. We need more people who understand how to make a difference. This is so necessary and it's so important. And moving the United States Congress is one of the hardest things in the world. So working on science and technology is my second imperative. And my third one is advanced illness and end-of-life care. So we have an aging population all over the world, even in the low-income countries. And what we have is older people flooding into the healthcare system. And we've got to do something about advanced illness and end-of-life care. So what it comes down to is closing the gap between what people want when they are seriously ill and what our health systems give them. So those are my three priorities. And other people may have different priorities. But we all need priorities. The American Medical Association, all these specialty groups, pediatrics, preventive medicine, many others, and they see climate as a health crisis, which of course it is. And so they're advocating at the federal level for change, but also at the local level. And who can be a more powerful lobbyist than a physician? So a woman brings her daughter in and says, I think my seven-year-old daughter has asthma. 
this is an opportunity for that pediatrician to talk about climate action. And that's why I think medical societies and clinicians are so important. It's a very good example of how finding a new angle on some aspect of climate and public health. I was going to say, you reminded me of something with COP26. Greta Thunberg and other non-government organizations at COP26 said, we don't want the oil and gas companies here. These people are the villains. They're the problem. They're not the solution. And the big oil and gas companies, they said, how can we solve this if we're not all at the table? And the result of this in our country is that we have fewer and fewer STEM graduates. We have less money spent on security, international security. It affects health. It affects climate action. It affects everything that we think about in our normal lives. In a committee, who are the people who you're working with? So just like you helped uh, people realize you're working with eight or nine doctors and small business people in the climate change area that then cascades to 40 different medical societies that then cascades to the nurses in the community and the doctors. How, how are you doing this on science and technology? Because that seems like a very distant horizon to the ordinary citizen. Well, it's the same principle, really. We've put together a really prominent and I think effective committee, and it consists of all kinds of prominent people. We're talking about former heads of the National Institutes of Health, former heads of CDC, all kinds of really prominent individuals, former congressmen and senators. And these are people who really understand not just the need for increasing science, but really how to do it. And so we're involved right now in a pretty effective lobbying, I'd say. A lot of communications work, and much of this is inside the Beltway. But in our system, you've got to talk to the people back home. It's that old idea of bottom-up. So we need to go back. We need to go back to places where these senators and these Congress people are from, and they need to hear from their constituents. So it's a similar approach. It's a tall order, but it's doable. You're seeking shareable solutions, both acknowledging that you work in a very swift and severe world where the speed of information can spike many confused enemies. But what you really do is you habitually embrace the notion of sharing shoulder strength. You are a football player, when you were a younger man, and there are hilarious passages in your book of the shoulder strength of the team. You must have been adept in the short run and kind of adaptive in the long because you don't have a physique of a football player. I like to say I was small, but I made up for it by being slow. You were an athlete. You know that, again, it goes back to teamwork. Good teams can move mountains. And in order to be a, a real team leader, a real team player, you know, you have to really understand your teammates and you have to know how to build a team and you have to have a certain amount of humility. You just can't say, follow me up the mountain. It's got to be the kind of thing where you're willing to listen to other people and have them tell you what's wrong with your idea. So I don't care if you're a Unilever where you're playing college uh, football, or in your case, basketball, you know, team building is the difference. Each of the chapters is a narrative case told in a very witty, personal way about seeking shareable solution. It's not about this is my way or no way. It's who wrote the introductions to the book and the forward and who you work with. I've threatened to write another book about all the mistakes I've made. But this book, the foreword was written by Jim Clifton, who is the chairman and CEO of Gallup. And he's a guy that I really admire. Gallup is a very strong organization. They really understand employee engagement, health and well-being. They do a lot of great research. And so I have Jim Clifton come to my classes and speak about ethical leadership. 
And the other person is Joanne Jenkins, and she is the CEO of AARP. And, uh, you know, people around the world may not know AARP, but it's about 40 million members. These are people 50 and older, and it's a very, very strong advocacy organization. So it's Jim Clifton and Joanne Jenkins, and they were kind enough to write the forewords of the book. You know, when Mia earlier said that we've got problems, one of the things in our country, but I think in many countries, is the fact that we've gotten more and more divisive. Political factions have just come to extremes. And one of the things you learn is how to be bipartisan in life. You have to be political, but you need to be bipartisan. And so one of the lessons I try to get across is we need to cross the aisle. Somebody going from one political party to the other to try to get something done. But we all have to do that in our own lives. We have to understand that people who disagree with us are not ignorant. They're people. They're fellow citizens, just as we are. So crossing the aisle is really important. And if we don't do that, we're never going to find harmony again. We have to be able to see ourselves in a number of positions. It's, it's really the skill of empathy and, and to understand in some ways to convince people that they really want the same things. They're just maybe calling it by different terms. Yes, it's true. I've been called a lot of names. <laughs> I, I talk about this in the book. And even a communist, one, a senator, a United States senator called me a communist. But again, you just have to essentially shrug it off. And if we can really get our ideas out there, we're not always going to win, but more often than not, we will. So how do we communicate better the big picture to understand what we're contributing to? And I'm feeling that a lot of our major problems are about communicating it well to understand how it all works together. It is. It really is. You know, there are lots of ways to use good communications research to find the meaningful insights. So to give you a quick example, for a long time, it was very difficult to get kids not to experiment with tobacco and to become addicted. And finally, through good insight research, a strategy was developed. Kids like to rebel against their mothers, their fathers, their, their teachers. Let's get them to rebel against the tobacco industry. Those guys in suits who are trying to addict them to become replacement smokers. And then that insight wore out. And so now the Truth Initiative in this country is working very hard to find new insights. And one of the things they found is that kids today are very worried about mental health, suicidal thoughts, not being able to go to school, spending more and more time in your room. Kids are worried about mental health. So they've used that to try to get across anti-vaping messages. And the results are not in yet, but the early results are that it's working. Those are the kinds of insights that we need to find. I'd like to explore your vision of how corporations can and will change. Just in the last two months of the horrible war in Ukraine, we saw companies like BP taking 19.7% of their ownership of Russian oil away from the Russians. We saw Disney stopping films. We saw over 300 medium-sized firms so that Putin's economy is now dented, according to the U.S. Treasury, somewhere between 22% and 28%. And it's shrinking. So the one way to take an evil man and isolate him from the oligarchs that support him is to make that economy shrink. This is a new kind of capitalism. Bad behavior is hurt faster than just through government regulation. Now, I call this a social response capitalism as a way of deliberately shifting our thinking from what Milton Friedman thought about, which was market capitalism. The mechanical version of a corporation is only maximizing profit. I'd like your opinion on this. And how do you see a corporation as it become more osmotic with society so that it is really about 
business and society rather than just business. Well, you've written about punishing Putin, and that's a, an extreme example. But you're right. Companies are moving out of Russia, and BP is a great example. Disney in the United States is dealing with this. So really what it comes down to is because corporations are under more pressure to speak out on social issues because of investors, because of customers, because of employees, they need to do this. They need to speak out. They just can't keep their heads down or keep their heads in the sand. So what, what they have to do is they have to make sure that they're true to their own corporate values. They have to really monitor all these different social issues. They can't speak out on everything. They have to stay close to their employees, and they also have to test their messages because there's nothing worse than being tone deaf. So while an extreme example is pulling out of Russia, we see U.S. companies trying to deal with it in Florida, in Georgia, and other places. So more and more companies are having to speak out. Usually in today's world, you read a book with two or three inputs, but there's 20 or 30 in your book. One of the more fascinating ways you bring us to the end in a chapter called, what do we owe our grandchildren? How do you balance your responsibility with being bigger than yourself? Well, this is one of the biggest problems that we have in this country. And I think in other countries as well. So on the one hand, we know that we have to take personal responsibility for ourselves, our own health, our families. It's up to us. As some people like to say, you're on your own. And we have to balance that against the concept that we're all in this together. You know, the idea that it takes a village and both sides essentially disrespect the other side. They criticize the other side. No, we're not in this together. It's your own responsibility and vice versa. And if we're going to be good citizens and we're going to make progress, we have to see both sides of that equation. That's not easy to do. It sometimes it takes a big person to know that sometimes we only realize it towards the middle or end of our life about what that exactly means. This book has all been about life lessons. And as you alluded to, maybe you write a, a second book about the mistakes you made. But what do you tell your grandchildren that was important for you to know, to, to have learned? How do you prepare them to navigate their futures? Well, that's a really important question. I have seven grandchildren, my wife and I do, and we're very, very proud of them. But I worry a lot. They have so much in life, so much more than we had when we were kids. And, you know, all four of my grandparents came here from somewhere else. And they had these immigrant values. So love of country, that's the United States, the country they came to, strength of family, a reverence really for education, and an appetite for hard work. And try telling kids today who are playing with their cell phones and doing what they do, and it can fall on deaf ears. And so what we have to do, I really think, is work as hard as we can to help our grandkids understand what a great country, what a great society we really have, not just the United States, but, but other countries as well. And that's not easy to do. And so what I like to say, and this sounds corny, I know, but aim high, strive hard. And that's not a lesson that a 12-year-old is going to easily pick up, but maybe an older kid will. And I just want to keep after it. I think it's so important. And as you mentioned, we are very fractured in terms of our society. And I say, I think I benefited, and you, you speak about grandparents and where your parents came from. Sometimes we forget where we came from when we don't have that multi-generational family experience, but it's so nice to be able to learn from our grandparents, but this is something not as common now. So in some ways, children are a little bit raising themselves. That's true. That's true. And so we have to think about, you know, again, that favorite question, what's next? And Bill, I want to thank you for your sharp articulation of 
providing many grounds for hope. And we want you to know that you're our first in a series on business and society. So we want to thank Bill Novelli for adding your voice and insights. Bruce, thank you. It, it's really been an honor to, to talk to you and to Mia. I really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Andrew Green. Digital Media Coordinator was Julia Rhodes. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.